Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Making a Killing, the podcast from Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative on how corruption is reshaping global politics. I'm Nate Sibley and together with Casey Michelle and Paul Massaro will be your guide on this journey into the darker corners of the global economy. Today Casey and I will be talking about the United Kingdom's efforts to address its status as a global centre for money laundering by kleptocrats and other criminals. As the second biggest financial centre after the US, the UK has a pivotal role to play in countering corruption and kleptocracy. And while it's shown global leadership on some issues like tackling shell company abuse, doubts continue to be raised about the resources available to UK law enforcement and whether Boris Johnson will be prepared to join Joe Biden in declaring kleptocracy a national security priority. Joining us today will be Tom Keating, who spent 20 years as an investment banker at JP Morgan, but since 2014 has served as director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, one of London's most prestigious think tanks. Tom's programme at RUSI produces some of the most rigorous analysis of the UK's anti-money laundering and anti-corruption efforts, both policy and operational point of view, and it's highly recommended reading if you find today's shows interesting. The timing couldn't be better as RUSI recently launched the Task Force on a Transatlantic Response to Illicit Finance, or TARIF, which brings together civil society experts from the US and the UK to try and enhance cooperation against dirty money. That's enough from me in Washington, D.C. Let's hear from Casey, who's in New York, and Tom Keating, who joins us from his home in Hampshire in the beautiful English countryside. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome again to the latest episode of Making a Killing. Uh, As Nate mentioned in the introduction, we are very pleased to be joined today by Tom Keating. Uh, Tom, you know, this has been, uh, certainly for those of us in the U.S., uh, frankly, an incredibly exciting last few months, certainly last six months after something of a, uh, how shall we say, up and down few years before that with uh, the previous administration, certainly the previous tenant of the White House. But we have seen over the last few months in many ways the kinds of momentum, the kinds of developments, and certainly the kinds of discussions that we have been hoping for for many, many years and certainly pushing for uh, on this side of the Atlantic for uh, for many, many years. I was wondering, given obviously that you are based in the UK and so much of our discussion today is going to be centered on the kind of transatlantic alliance and certainly transatlantic discussions about policies uh, moving forward, I was wondering if you might just give us kind of a 10,000-foot view of what you have seen over the last few months and, frankly, the last few years in London, in the broader UK, regarding developments in this kind of kleptocratic, transnational, illicit finance space. Uh, how excited are you? Uh, you know, how concerned are you? What has stood out to you on uh, on your end? You know, if you can give us a flavor of what things have been like in the UK in recent months or recent years, I think that would be great. No, sure. Well, uh, thank you, Casey and, uh, and Nate, for, for having me. Um, so look, I think if you're sitting in the UK at the moment and you care about these issues as passionately as we do, as passionately as you guys obviously do, um, frankly, you're pretty frustrated. Uh, and why do I say that? I say that because in 2016, uh, under David Cameron, when he was prime minister, I think the UK kind of stole a march on the rest of the world uh, with the leadership uh, around the anti-corruption summit. And David Cameron clearly understood, as he said in one of his speeches, you know, you you cannot stash your dodgy cash in the UK. Uh, And he was trying to take the UK down a road that would facilitate the stopping of the dodgy cash being stashed in the UK, of which there obviously is plenty. 
We then obviously had the Brexit referendum, which completely derailed the country. Um, you know, if you think that the previous presidency derailed your country, I can tell you what, the Brexit referendum obviously massively derailed uh, the United Kingdom. And so all the ambitions of the Cameron era evaporated. Uh, and so we had a number of years where really not a lot has happened. And we can get into what has happened because certain things have happened, but not a lot meaningful has happened. And then, of course, uh, President Biden arrived in the White House. And suddenly, I think the UK has had to say, hang on a minute, here's a guy who actually wants to grapple with kleptocracy and corruption. We, the UK, are part of the problem, just as the, the, the US is with the services we offer around the world. We need to get our house in order. And so what we are agitating for um, on our side of the Atlantic is for Firstly, the president to lean on our prime minister and for our prime minister to actually show some leadership um, in a community which cares, like the civil servants care. But at the moment, the leadership in this country isn't displaying the same level of passion. You know, you mentioned just a moment ago, Tom, the anti-corruption summit, obviously David Cameron's anti-corruption summit, which I think to use your phrase, stole a march on the rest of the world. Obviously, the kinds of rhetoric, obviously the kinds of policy proposals that emerged from that summit were in many ways, second to none, and certainly in many ways, uh, what those of us who've been advocating for, uh, covering, analyzing, pushing for, have been waiting for for years and years. But again, as you mentioned, also in the last few years, we have certainly seen not nearly enough momentum behind those kinds of policies, those kinds of statements, that kind of rhetoric actually implemented. I, you know, I know obviously you just mentioned Brexit. Has it been just one, uh, I suppose, vacuum of leadership, of policy proposals, of momentum forward in London since that summit? Has it been a little bit up and down? Are, are, are there elements that we can at least point to as things that moved things in a positive direction? Are there any cases uh, that stand out? Or, or has it been just one downhill trajectory ever since? No, no, it hasn't at all. And it would be wrong to suggest that um, sort of everything just ground to a halt in 2016. So for example, you know, the UK has an entirely transparent company register in the form of Companies House. Um, some of what you see through this transparency is uh, famously garbage, but nonetheless, it is um, entirely transparent, and it's you know it's world leading, as the uh, as the politicians in this country uh, like to say. And I think you know the UK should obviously be congratulated for for that. Um, the UK, through concerned MPs as opposed to through the government leadership, have put pressure on the overseas territories, the places like the British Virgin Islands, to likewise move towards transparency of their company registries. You know, that that's process is, is on ongoing. Um, there was momentum on legislation after the uh, after the anti-corruption summit to introduce unexplained wealth orders, these reverse burden of proof um, tools that require uh, oligarchs and others to prove where their wealth came. Otherwise, guess what? Um, they're going to lose it. So a lot of good stuff has happened. Um, I wouldn't want listeners to think that the UK just put its pen down in 2016 at the time of the Brexit referendum. What hasn't happened, though, is this kind of whole of government um, effort to you know, floor press the issue of kleptocracy and, and anti-corruption and illicit finance. So, yeah, we still struggle with enablers, for example. Um, there, there, are, there are a whole load of issues that we need to grapple with. And just to give an example of what I mean by that, Companies House is transparent, but we all know that the data in it is not the quality it should be. There was a big consultation on how it should be improved. Uh, reform was a, was um, proposed. And now we need to find time in the legislative uh, timetable in the UK to bring forward the legislation needed to update Companies House. And repeatedly, 
the Boris Johnson government has refused to include that legislation on its list of plans for each year. Each year in the UK, um, a plan is made. And in the most recent plan back in May this year, that legislation wasn't included. So that's what I mean by the lack of commitment. If you can't make legislative time, then we won't make progress. Yeah, um, Tom. Why do you why do you sense that is? Uh, you know, you know, the UK clearly has this this wonderful uh, sort of foundation to build on as a as a global anti corruption leader. These aren't particularly, to my understanding, you know, controversial um, or problematic reforms. Um, you know, they're sort of tinkering and improving. Uh, you know, for example, the company's house. It's improving it. It's not the initial concern when you introduce these registers of beneficial ownership is that there'll be a burden on business. Well, there wasn't in the UK's case, and now it's just a case of, so why won't they make legislative time? And maybe a slightly controversial question, but do you think Boris Johnson perhaps has has a few qualms about going full headlong into the, into the sort of anti-corruption uh, sphere because of the, of the concerns around his own uh, inner circle? Um, you know, there was the famous thing with his who paid for redecorating his flat, and then there's been all sorts of questions about, you know, um, uh, sort of cronies being given contracts during for COVID and, and so on. Now, these aren't sort of transnational kleptocracy issues that we sort of deal with, but one can understand a sort of political reluctance to sort of, you know, you might open yourself to charges of hypocrisy. Do you think there's an element of that? Or how can we prod Boris Johnson uh, to become an anti-corruption champion, I suppose, is, is, the, is the short question I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, Nate, you're right to point out his, his Achilles heel in all of this. And indeed, just in the last uh, few days, the Financial Times has been running a pretty stinky story about money being close to um, the uh, the Conservative Party. So I think there is a there is there may well be an, an element uh, of that. I, I think the there is this this um, terrifying phrase that the government uses, which is uh, when parliamentary time allows, right? So a lot of these issues that need to be dealt with uh, require new legislation. And very simply, they have chosen to prioritise other legislative uh, introduction over uh, the the issues around, for example, companies' house reform. Now, some of the things they prioritised, I think many people would argue um, anti-corruption comes way ahead of that. But nonetheless, parliamentary time has been a restriction. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that unlike the US, where I think from this side of the Atlantic, the US is fully prepared to spend the money necessary to upgrade its response to kleptocracy, invest in FinCEN, invest in law enforcement, you know, go after people's assets. That all takes time and money. The The, the UK government uh, is, is bluntly uh, pretty impoverished. And so when it's thinking about how it spends its money, that money is going to be spent on leveling up, bringing parts of the country that are less profitable uh, to a level that is more like the south of, of, the, of the country. And frankly, until pounds are invested in the response, uh, I think that it's going to be very difficult for the UK to play the part it should play. And it's not in the government's interest at the moment to spend that, that money. So it's a combination of resources, money uh, and prioritisation. And yes, to your point, Possibly prioritisation is coloured by what might be revealed when the hood is lifted. I was going to say, Tom, you know, it's it's funny that you mentioned the willingness to resource, certainly on this side of the Atlantic in, in Washington. And, and and I suppose yeah, it's funny hearing that, certainly having watched the uh, decisions and discourse out of Washington over the last last few months. Maybe I'm a little bit too greedy, but I can 
certainly say that I'm always advocating for more funding, right, for the IRS, for FinCEN, for the investigations, for asset recovery. Uh, certainly uh, from one vantage, it does seem like Washington is more than willing to continue funding as much as possible. Uh, and again, maybe I'm being just a bit too greedy on that front as it pertains to always wanting more, always pushing for more. Certainly, I don't need to explain to, uh, to you or the audience just how important the elements and issues of kleptocracy and transnational money laundering uh, are. Um, Tom, I guess just kind of maybe one final question about what you've seen take place in the UK over the last few months before we begin talking about the kinds of transatlantic bridges that continue to be built in this space. Um, are there any elements of uh, positive momentum that you have seen that have maybe stood out to you that, that, that maybe some of us who've been watching from the outside haven't quite picked up. And I mean, I, I know you just mentioned Companies House and Companies House reforms, and certainly in many ways, the UK still remains uh, ahead of where the US is regarding shell company uh, uh, ownership information and shell company transparency. Obviously, the US's forth, forthcoming shell company registry will be private. Uh, but are there are there elements that you can kind of point to, maybe silver linings, maybe discourse, maybe maybe certain policy ideas that have begun floating around that uh, you would want to highlight as a positive development rather than this kind of, I don't know, stasis or, 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 or you know, in many ways, vacuum uh, of um, uh, discourse that we've seen uh, that we saw even just a few years ago, this kind of fall off? Yeah, no, I think it's important to recognize that within the British civil service, um, there are a very great number of people with lots of ideas and lots of energy that they would love to see brought forward and supported and sponsored by their ministry. So that you know, groups of people in the FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, for example, people in the Home Office, people within the National Crime Agency. So there are no shortage of people who get the joke. Um, and what they uh, dearly want frankly, is people like us to promote what they're doing and to find ways of persuading the powers that be that these ideas should be taken forward. So anything we can do, and we always try and do this to um, support their ambition, I think is 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 uh, is worthwhile. And and as I say, there are lots of there are lots of ideas there. I think a second area that's worth pointing to is the extent to which the private sector in the UK has engaged with this mission. So we had formed back in 2000 and Fifteen, this thing called the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, the, the GIMLIT, which was kind of one of the original public-private partnerships for combating financial crime. There is a considerable international corruption, international bribery element to um, that, that work as a working group that focuses on that. And given the, the prevalence of international banks in the UK, there's a lot of information, resource, intelligence in London that can be used um, to, uh, to, to to combat this sort of thing coming from the private sector side. So I think a combination of civil service um, uh, enthusiasm and private sector commitment, it's all there. It just needs the, the big guy to light the blue touch paper. And <laughs> I, I, I believe the rocket could take off. The, the, the uh, you know, to use another metaphor, the Tinder is already there. It's already built up. All it needs is that one spark from a certain uh, uh, politician who uh, we, we mentioned uh, earlier in this discussion. I was going to say, Tom, obviously one of the, 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 the primary reasons we wanted to have you on this podcast today, to have this discussion today, was regarding a recent initiative that you helped launch, which I, I want to talk about in, in, in just a moment. But before we get there, I know, Tom, we were joking 
off mic earlier that today I'm, I'm surrounded by British accents and, and certainly I wouldn't want it any other way. But Tom, I, I should highlight that you're also surrounded by Americans today, fortunately or, or, or otherwise. And Nate, I actually wanted to ask you a question. Obviously, you wear multiple hats, given your British background, <laughs> given your American citizenship. And I drink myself nothing, in multiple flags, yes. <laughs> yes. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, 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 you know, now you get to enjoy multiple heartbreaks, whether it's the English men's national team or, you know. You know, pick, pick your pick your American uh, 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 team. Certainly, this this Olympics. But you know, to say nothing of the fact that you are as immersed in this space as, as anybody. And I just wanted to bounce off of you, given your unique position within this broader discourse, broader discussion, and certainly broader transatlantic relationship. What has it been like for you? I mean, you know, we, we talk about these these kind of diverging elements of momentum, of policy, of discourse. Obviously, Tom just mentioned the tinder that has already been been built up. I mean, does that resonate with you, in terms of watching this kind of divergence develop between Washington and, and London, are there elements of it uh, that we ha- maybe we haven't discussed today, or don't get as much prominence for you? I'm just—I guess I'm wondering what it's no, like. No, absolutely. I, I spend—I see what you're getting at, Casey, and I spend a lot of my time just naturally because of my background uh, in comparative mode, and it's been quite sort of frustrating to see w- one thing, uh, one one opportunity sort of arise in the UK, uh, only to, only to, you know, but it happened during the Trump administration. Trump wasn't interested. Now we've got. An enthusiastic president and a prime minister who's not so interested. Uh, but it, you know, just you know, we started at the ten thousand foot view. But one of the things that's always fascinated uh, me is the general trend, which is the U.S. has, uh, you know, is, is unparalleled. You know, as we were talking about earlier, in terms of the resources, the political will it brings to bear on enforcement of laws, of anti-bribery laws, of anti-money laundering laws. Still not where it should be, uh, but it, it's got laws on the books and it, it jolly well enforces them. And it, you know, whenever there's a big uh, case when there's a kleptocrat or a terrorist financing group, it's when the, the Americans get involved that they actually get scared. It's not when the EU gets involved, or even sadly to say, like the UK uh, filing an indictment or something like that. It's that people start running when the Americans are, are coming when it comes to financial crime. The uh, but the U- US's Achilles heel, so to speak, is that it has this rather narrow uh, regulatory scope for for, for anti anti money laundering. So um, it's really only you know with a few exceptions, it's really only traditional banks. That have to sort of report suspicious activity by their clients and so on and so forth. Uh, and if you, but all the other sort of what we call on this program the enablers, lawyers, you know, real estate agents or estate agents in the UK, um, you know, accountants, none of them have to report anything. They can just keep flinging dirty money around with abandon. You, you go to the UK and you just flip that situation on its head in terms of the long term trend, where they have this amazing thanks to the fourth and fifth anti money laundering directive and some some of its own own initiatives that, that Tom was talking about. It's very broad and deep sort of regulatory uh, framework where it's actually should be quite hard for dirty money to slip through. Uh, but the UK government just doesn't enforce these laws, uh, sometimes at all. Um, if you look at the Bribery Act uh, is a great example. Passed in 2010, again, another groundbreaking example of uh, UK global leadership because it not only outlawed bribery of foreign officials by British companies, but it outlawed, uh, you know, they, 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 it gave basically universal jurisdiction over bribery uh, to the UK courts, which is astonishing. Um, you know, a corrupt official anywhere in the world can be, um, if it involved a British connection of some kind, can be, can be prosecuted in the UK courts. Something we're talking about do, only just now, starting to talk about doing in the in the in the in the US. Thanks to our friend uh, Paul Massaro and his 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 various uh, people on on Capitol Hill. Uh, but so you, you have this sort of like, you know, a long time to say a short thing. In the U- US, we have great enforcement, not so not such great laws. In the, U- the UK, we have great laws, no enforcement. Um, and, and so that's been sort of the frustrating thing of, of having a, a foot on either side of the pond. And, and to, to meet somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic 
uh, in terms of you know properly funding uh, investigations and prosecutions, but also making sure that we have laws in place to do that. I don't know, Tom, do you do you get that sense as well? I know you follow things pretty closely in the US. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's always striking, we find, that when we look at the action plans and the commitments that the British government makes, and this goes, this goes across uh, prime ministers, this isn't specific to today, the, the legislative, the policy actions are always done on time, done well, uh, introduced, whatever. The operational ones as soon as money is required, become much, much more challenging for the UK to uh, to enforce. So you, you mentioned the Bribery Act. I mean, you, we, you often hear people outside the US complaining about the long arm of, uh, of, of the US. You know, US law enforcement can get you anywhere in the world because you're using the US dollar. Well, actually, the Bribery Act, as you rightly point out, has a very long arm uh, as, as well. And to emphasize your point, I think the one thing that the European Union has has done, although the European Union moves slowly, it does move relentlessly. It doesn't stop moving forward. And so around the various money laundering directives, the, the EU has looked at the landscape, seen the new risks that are emerging and has responded to them. So things like, yes, the regulation of, of lawyers, accountants, real estate agents, all those pieces that, as Nate says, we all call enablers, um, do come within the scope of regulation on this side of the Atlantic. Um, so again, good at good at that regulation. But then what happens? What happens when you know the the, the enablers uh, start enabling? Law enforcement struggles to deal with that. And I think that presents kind of a natural segue into you know, you know Nate the metaphor that you just used was you know this kind of lack of coordination, kind of a one step forward while the other one takes a step back. Meanwhile, the other takes a step forward and the other one takes a a step back this this kind of lack of coordination the lack of moving in the right direction at the same time um leads us to one of the projects that uh i think we've kind of been dancing around so far today but again tom one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today to discuss is a brand new task force aimed at exactly that aimed at creating the kinds of relations creating the kinds of discussions creating the kinds of unified organized coordinated policy proposals on both sides of the Atlantic to make sure that as one partner moves forward the other follows suit or as one leads the other follows um, can you talk about share with listeners a little bit about what this new task force is what it's called who's involved what it's doing what it's already achieved and uh, where things may go from here Sure. No, well, uh, it's great to have the opportunity to talk about this. So we call it the TARIF, the Task Force on Transatlantic Response to Illicit Finance. Um, uh, yet your, yours and our good friend, Paul Massaro, I think, outed me on Twitter as, as, as pretty good at coming up with acronyms. So we like, like TARIF. Hopefully, we're, hopefully TARIF uh, is more than just an acronym. <laughs> but the idea, the idea really was to get together people with a range of experiences from outside government. I mean, obviously, many of them have previously been in government, but this is not a, this doesn't involve uh, government participation uh, from the US, from the UK, to really figure out how can we collectively take responsibility for what we as major financial centres enable around the world, which is the laundering of the proceeds of corruption, the proceeds of kleptocracy and, and the like. And I think we have to start by saying that the problem is made worse right now by the US and the UK, but it could equally be made a lot better by the US and the UK. So that's at the heart of what we're trying uh, to achieve. So we have, uh, as I say, uh, lots of um, former, there's about 45, 50 people. You know, often when you put these task force together, you send out an invitation and you hope that maybe a third of people agree to participate. Uh, we had like instant responses saying yes from everybody. So we've got this big gang of people, which is great. 
Um, and the idea uh, really is to draw on all this expertise, including uh, both 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 of you, including Paul, including former uh, government uh, staffers, including people with uh, fintech backgrounds uh, from both sides of the Atlantic, and really think how could we create um, not just a, a, a kind of inching forward of the status quo, but like what are the really big issues that we need to deal with? And then let's take those, let's use our our, our political contacts, our political influence. And let's take those to these guys and say, look, if you're serious about uh, combating illicit finance and, and kleptocracy, this is what the UK and the US should be doing together. And it won't be in lockstep, because as we talked about here, we all have different uh, capabilities and funding and so on to bring to the table. But in collaboration, this is what we could um, achieve as two transatlantic states uh, who are big global financial centers. So that's the that's the big idea. And that's what we're going to be running over the rest of this year and into early next. All right. So we're talking about dozens of experts, uh, academics, uh, uh, policymakers, certainly journalists like myself, those who uh, work in, in think tanks on both sides of the Atlantic, coming together to discuss, to collaborate, to share policy ideas, to um, unearth potential elements of disagreement or concern, um, to have these regular discussions, to then be able to push for the kind of broader slate of policy proposals that would end up eliminating, again, on the one hand, the kinds of enabling mechanisms that exist both in the U.S. and the U.K. as well as elsewhere. But then on the other hand, being able to continue those elements of leadership that the U.S. and U.K. have already provided. I mean, I can, I can certainly say, you know, our, our first meeting with with Tariff was just last week, and I was very fortunate to attend. And again, I, Tom, I know you mentioned, but for the sake of full disclosure, you know, Nate, myself, and Paul uh, are all members of this this task force. Um, you know, Tom, I, I I guess I I wouldn't I'm not at all surprised that there was such quick and enthusiastic response for those of us who are part of this task force. Certainly, it fills a what seems to have been a vacuum beforehand. That is to say, a policy shop. Uh, a discussion sh discussion shop that brings together such a wide base of expertise to have these regular discussions to again be, be able to build these elements of of moment momentum. I was just going to say I think there were two elements that certainly stood out to me on on my end in that first discussion. And yes, there were a number of technical discussions, a number of technical details that came forth in terms of whether it's the enablers, whether it's um, uh, looking specifically at the roles of real estate or trust, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, maybe there's another conversation for that down the line. But I think as a very first conversation, there were two elements that, that stood out to me. One, a very clear understanding of the fact that for both the U.S. and the U.K., we need to get our own houses in order. That is to say, taking care of the issues domestic to, or nominally domestic at least, because again, we're talking about transnational networks to the U.S., to the UK, especially again, as you mentioned, those those enablers. And then the second element that kind of stood out to me beyond that, or maybe related to that, is the need for a kind of humility, almost. While we recognize the elements of leadership within the US and the UK, we nonetheless recognize again, the fact that the US and the UK have transformed into such remarkable financial secrecy, services centers, such pro-kleptocracy in many ways, uh, uh, jurisdictions of their own. And so going to foreign partners, going to uh, uh, foreign officials, transitioning governments, et cetera, et cetera, elsewhere with the sense that and the understanding that there's still much work to do be done at home will, at least theoretically, uh, allow these programs and these policy proposals to move forward that much more. I mean, those are the two elements that stood out to me, obviously being being part of the discussion last week. 
Um, I don't know, uh, Tom. What what stood out on on uh, on yeah. your end? Uh, so I, I mean, I think I I would agree with that. I think um, one of the issues that was discussed in one of the breakout rooms I was was in was that fixing domestic issues, a bit like a pebble in a pond, fixing domestic issues will often have international repercussions. So the obvious example in the case of the UK is if you can fix and reform Companies House, which is abused by people all around the world, not, it's not just people in the UK who abuse Companies House, that will have international implications. So fixing the, the home base, I think, is important. The need for humility, humility I think, is a really important point. I, I had the opportunity um, to visit Pakistan on a, a illicit finance um, field trip back in 2018. And uh, for those those who don't know, RUSI, you know, we're a defense and security think tank based on Whitehall, like roughly opposite the end of Downing Street. So, you know, we we, we see all, all this, this going on. And so I have Whitehall written on my business card. And we walked into this meeting. Uh, it was with a, a, an accountant, actually, a senior accountant who um, picked up the business card. And he looked at the business card and he said, young man, he said, you should know that in Pakistan, people with white tool on their business card do not have a good reputation. So I said, "Well, sorry, but I'm not from the British government. Don't you know? Don't don't take this the wrong way." Um, and he said, "Well, he said, when people come to this country and talk about dirty money, it's always us in Pakistan are a problem for you in the UK. When is someone going to come to this country and say, hey, 'Hey, we're here because we know that.'" Um, tax avoidance is facilitated by financial institutions or enablers in, in London, because then we can have a conversation. So that was really interesting. And then I met some people from the NCA who said, funnily enough, we started taking that approach with our counterparts here in Islamabad. And yes, we get a great reception. So I think humility is really, really important. I think the other point that came out to me was there was a phrase that success travels. Um, and I wrote that down a number of times during the meeting, because I think there are successes that we in the UK and the US can point to. And we need to share those successes, those ideas with our partners around the world through the FATF, through the Five Eyes, through NATO even, right? Um, and try and get them on board with successes. I think the last thing that we should be doing, and which both the UK and the US are, um, are guilty of, is finger wagging at other countries. The finger wagging, I think, has to stop. We have to demonstrate success by leadership, uh, and then people will follow, would be my argument. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, Tom, that, that is an excellent uh, 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 anecdote, certainly example, um, regarding your conversations in Pakistan. You know, I, I think back to similar conversations with uh, uh, partners, investigative journalists uh, in Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine going through uh, any number of transitions over the last few years, American officials arriving, uh, uh, proposing certainly uh, um, very successful and, and um, in, in many ways much needed anti-corruption reforms domestically in Ukraine. But nonetheless, having Ukrainian partners come back and say, well, it just so happens that the oligarchs that you're discussing, the ones that you want us to target, the ones that you want us to bring to heel, happen to be using the kinds of offshore financial secrecy services that the U.S. provides in space. We're talking about real estate. We're talking about lawyers. We're talking about transnational financing. Um, and it being nonetheless true. Um, I don't know. Nate, any thoughts on your end? Yeah, no, that's, that's a conversation I increasingly have uh, with everyone from a country that, that suffers from severe corruption risks. I've I've had I've had uh, anti-corruption campaigners from across Africa, Latin America, various meetings. When are we getting our money back? You, you know, your guys, your your lawyers, your your bankers, your, they're the ones that stole it. Uh, you know, we have the corrupt officials. We'll deal with them. But when, when how are we going to get our money back? Uh, but no. So uh, I, I didn't make it to the first uh, tariff meeting. Unfortunately, I was I had my American uh, baseball cap on at that point. I was on a beach in in Alabama, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm looking forward to the next one. But so, so another thing that sort of strikes me is that. Um, 
you know, why the US and the UK particularly? Well, of course, they're the two biggest financial centers, but also they already have a fantastic uh, working relationship uh, on a sort of operational level with this stuff. Um, I I was good friends with um, uh, the, the, the SOCnet uh, officer, Ed Kitt, uh, who was based in Washington until recently. He's been sent to Australia now. Uh, this is the, the UK's um, network of um, national crime agency officers around the world who are dispatched to embassies in countries of interest uh, to help uh, to advise and, and report back on, on local sort of anti-money laundering, anti-corruption issues. Uh, tr- again, um, we haven't brought it up yet, but uh, and I think another tremendous example of, of UK uh, sort of policy leadership. Um, and so I got a little insight into, into all, the, all, all the ways that they were sort of working together. And they already have, they have a strate- on a government level, they have a strategic dialogue on illicit finance. You know, they're both members of the Five Eyes. But beyond that, they have a unique uh, data sharing agreement between law enforcement so I think um, you know you, you don't just go where, to where the uh, you know the problem is most severe and, and insurmountable. There's a ch- you you target where there's a chance for actually that there's already progress and there's a chance of, of making re- it a real profound success. And so um, I think the other thing is you know very I'm very optimistic about it. I'm looking forward to the, the and, and it's great to see tariff as the sort of civil society side of that. Um, and so, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next meeting. Uh, Good for you. What, what, what sort of, um, I guess, the next sort of natural question would be, what are some of the, um, so what are some of the low-hanging fruit here, Tom? Uh, what, what, what do you think uh, the US and the UK, uh, you know, what is Tariff going to be talking about the most? Uh, I know you don't speak for everyone in Tariff, but, but, but do you think is probably going to be top of the agenda? Yeah. So just before I come to that, I, I, it, it, uh, I'm ashamed to say that I should have mentioned Socknet. You're right, because I'm a big fan of what they, they do. And what's interesting about these policy advisors is they are generally in financial centers. Um, and like um, Ed was in, uh, was in, was in, in Washington or, or in, in the US. So I think you know that kind of working with partners is what we need to see more of. So I think that that's a really easy uh, bit of low-hanging fruit for uh, the tariff to promote and to monitor. So for example, if the UK, and we have a big spending review coming up in the autumn, if the UK were not to continue the funding of SOCnet, what a terrible indicator of intention that would be. Um, so I think we need to be making sure that uh, those kinds of initiatives are held up for the value that they uh, that they offer. I think another bit of low-hanging fruit is that we we have a lot of tools in the toolbox already. This is one of the things that came out of the discussion last week was somebody suggested we should audit the toolbox. So are we using all the laws and so on we have at our disposal already? Do we need to create more legislation or do we actually need to prosecute existing legislation um, more uh, more effectively? What other tools might we have, which perhaps aren't legal tools, but are they intelligence sharing tools? You know, we have the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force in the UK. You have initiatives based around Section 314A, 314B of the USA Patriot Act, which legislates for information sharing. So are we using those information sharing tools? I think another point that came out of the, the discussion was we're pretty good at looking within our own borders. We could be better, but we're pretty good at looking within our own borders. But boy, are we terrible at connecting ourselves up, even between nearest and dearest, like the United Kingdom uh, and 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 the USA. And and it's a you know it's a lazy trope. But the, the dirty money crosses the border without a passport. Uh, we get to the border and we say hello. Can I see your mutual legal assistance treaty? And we say yeah, sure. That'll take two years to process. So I think you know that kind of that 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 that's got to be low hanging fruit. That kind of intelligence sharing, information sharing. Um, supercharging that I would like to see uh, more of. And that clearly came uh, out of the discussions last week. Yeah. So obviously tariff, Tom, tariff will be continuing 
through next year. We will have more discussions. We'll have more conversations, certainly more policy proposals and ideas. And I, I, I certainly, you know, for, for myself, can't wait for the next discussion to move forward. Yeah, I, I, you know, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's one of those things, one of those elements that when you see it first proposed, and I remember when I first received the email regarding tariff, it's, it's, it's one of those creations that as soon as you see it, you begin wondering why something like this didn't exist years ago. And I certainly understand the reasons for why it would happen in 2021. It's just such a logical extension of where we've, where we are going, where we hope to go. And certainly, it's certainly such a much needed task force for how we can get things to, to where they are. I know we only have a few minutes remaining in our conversation today. And I, this is a just kind of one final question I was hoping to pose to you. And frankly, this is a, a question that could be a, uh, another episode in and of itself. Um, but just just for you, Tom, I'm wondering, obviously, when we're discussing the transatlantic relationship, when we're discussing tariff, we're talking, obviously, primarily about the U.S. and the U.K. And I know at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the kinds of momentum we've already seen in the U.S. Uh, right now, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the kind of momentum that we saw in the U.K. a few years ago. Obviously, there's no guarantee that that trajectory will remain moving forward. But just, just for you, I, I, I just wanted to ask... You know, what are or maybe what is the main lesson that the U.S. could impart on its British counterparts right now and vice versa? That is to say, what is the main lesson that the U.K. can impart on American partners right now? Now, that could be a policy proposal, a specific policy proposal. It could be something regarding the maintenance and extension of this momentum, or it could be what you just mentioned, just the simple increasing of relations and discourse between the two very close partners. Are there any elements that, that stand out to you? Are there any lessons or pieces of advice that stand out to you on that end? So I think the at, at its core, the solution to this issue has to be um, a kind of whole of government approach, as they would say, in, in the UK. And so that memo that came out of the White House, that, that commitment to take uh, corruption as a kind of national security issue, my imagination as as someone sitting over here is like when that kind of memo comes out that galvanizes um the uh, the, the, the 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 departments the government and so on within um within the united states so i think that is something that the uk could could learn from the us come forward with that kind of statement there's no hiding that memo's out there now right the biden administration cannot hide uh, from the commitments that 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 memo makes so that that i think is the lesson that that i would uh, impart to Boris Johnson if I had 30 seconds with him in a, in an elevator. I think going the other way, uh, I think has to be the issue of transparency. I had a conversation recently uh, with somebody from a country that is really dragging its feet on um, on transparency. In fact, it's backsliding on transparency to some degree. But his pushback to me was, I don't know why you are telling me uh, that you, we've got a problem with transparency, because even when we make the changes we are proposing, we will be more transparent than the United States. Uh, and I'm afraid that until I know people worked for a decade on the Corporate Transparency Act and, and moving things forward. But I think there are some there are some issues in the US that have to be fixed if the US is going to be taken seriously by countries that we want uh uh, us uh, want to take us uh, seriously. So I think we've got to continue pressing forward on transparency. That's something that the UK can put its hand up and say, we've done a good job on that. We're doing a good job on that. We're pressuring where we can, like the overseas territories. I think the US needs to, as you guys would say, 
uh, walk the talk or walk the walk or whatever the saying is. But anyway, just get on and do it. <laughs> That's right. There are a few phrases to that effect, but I think we understand what you mean, uh, Tom. And again, certainly Tariff, the uh, the new task force that you have helped launch is going to be an excellent platform for exactly uh, that. Uh, Nate, any final thoughts? No, thank you, Tom. That was fascinating. Uh, yes, as, as you said, Casey, I, I, I wear both my English uh, tweed flat cap or bowler hat or whatever and, and my American baseball cap. So it's, it's been great to chat about some of the differences, some of the difficulties uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, likewise, very excited uh, to see how the tariff group uh, proceeds and hopefully uh, the impact it has on uh, making the world's two biggest financial centers uh, hostile environments for dirty money. So if people want to know more about the, the, the tariff and it's been great to chat with you guys about it, then you know, check out the, the Rusi uh, website. And of course, if anyone's interested in getting involved, uh, then, you know, we've got 45 people. Why not have a few more? So uh, thank you guys very much and, uh, and, and appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much, Tom. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of Making a Killing. I hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. And if possible, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word around. I'll be back next week with Paul and Casey to discuss all the latest news and developments from the world of transnational corruption and kleptocracy.